This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis. Richard is Executive Director of the Australia Institute. He's also a trained economist and he joined me to demystify exactly what is happening with Australia's economy right now and why times are so tough for workers. Richard chats about the current economic issues we face, including increasing interest rates, inflation, tax cuts for the wealthy, and low real wages growth. Importantly, Richard explains what's really causing rising inflation and whether the Reserve Bank increasing interest rates will actually solve the problem. I think the economy certainly has been front and centre in our public discussions, even in the last however many months because of rising inflation, rising interest rates, concerns about real wages growth and much, much more. So to help us with all of this is Dr. Richard Dennis, who returns to the show to discuss all of these issues relating back to the Australian economy, as well as the Jobs and Skills Summit. Richard, if you're not aware, is the Executive Director of the Australia Institute based up in Canberra. He's an economist by trade and Richard joins us semi-regularly to discuss all of these issues and to put them into context, but also to explain them in words that everyone can understand to try and, as his book mentions, get rid of all of this econobabble that is constant in our public discussions about the economy and uh, make things a lot more clear for myself and for all of us listening. So thank you so much, Richard, for coming back onto the show. And also thank you for your contribution to Radiothon. It was a huge amount of fun. Oh, thank you. No, thanks for having me on and um, and to all those listeners who donated because, hey, it's not too late to donate now and that's what keeps community radio going. Exactly, exactly. But I did want to address something that we mentioned last week, which I said this is why Triple R and the Australia Institute are so well aligned is because only the Australia Institute would host a revenue summit, <laughs> <laughs> which I just love. I love the title. I love the idea. But I wonder, Richard, could you tell us about this revenue summit because we've just had a jobs and skills summit what is the revenue summit well look you know tax is an investment in our society it's the price we pay to live in a civilized society our government can't function without it but we're not allowed to talk about it and the fact is australia is one of the lowest tax countries in the developed world and if we want to have the high quality services that other countries take for granted you know the particular the nordic countries and the northern european countries generally if we want to have services like them, we have to have a tax system like them. So we're not afraid of the T word. And yes, on October 6, we're having a tax summit in, in Canberra. Uh, we've got Sally McManus speaking. We've got uh, Rod Sims, former head of the ACCC speaking, and a bunch of uh, people from uh, civil society, the unions and academia, and significantly quite a lot of the crossbenchers as well to come along and actually have a nice big public conversation about whether people think we need more tax maybe someone wants to suggest we need less but how do we how do we reform our tax system not where reform is a euphemism for cut taxes for rich people how do we reform our tax system reform it restructure it to make it purpose built for the 21st century so yeah october 6 what a what a great excuse to come to canberra come to an <laughs> event and talk about tax i don't even really need an excuse to go to canberra it's my favorite place which i know is a bit nerdy but 
Yay. And I'm very excited about that. Thank you for explaining it. And I can't wait to hear what happens at that summit because I remember all these years ago when we talk about revenue and uh, tax reform, a lot of it seemed to be code for increasing the GST. Yeah. And that's what business wanted. Is that still the, the kind of code word in the business circles, Richard? Look, sometimes, but, you know, to, to be a little bit arrogant, I think the Australia Institute kind of killed that off. For years that people would say, oh, you're right, we need more tax, let's increase the GST. And look, don't get me wrong, now that we've got a GST, I wouldn't repeal one. But if we're going to collect more revenue, I can think of much better ways to collect tax than extending the GST, uh, either increasing it uh, to 11 or 12 or even 15%, or you know, some people fantasise about wouldn't it be great if we put it on fresh fruit and vegetables. I think the Australia Institute killed off the zeal for relying on the GST when every time for the last 10 years someone said, how about we increase the GST, we put out some data saying, yeah, let's put it on private school fees and private <laughs> health insurance. And, and, and there seems to be this big overlap between people who like the GST going up for other people and people who send their kids to private schools <laughs> and who uh, rely heavily on private health insurance. So, yeah, the, it is true that uh, fresh fruit and vegetables are excluded uh, from the GST. That was not an accident. It was a deliberate choice. But most people don't realise that sending your kid to private school uh, is GST-free, which, of course, means that a lot of the extracurricular activities, the piano lessons, the art lessons, the horse riding, a lot of that winds up being GST free as well, because as luck would have it, it's bundled up in education services. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's too arrogant of you to say, Richard. And I'm so <laughs> glad that the conversation has moved on because it was painful to be part of or even listen to. So it's good that we have developed and um, become more sophisticated through think tanks like the Australia Institute. So let's talk about the current economic issues that we've been facing, but also that have really been constant in the media. And that's clearly because the you know Reserve Bank of Australia decided after saying pretty publicly they weren't going to raise interest rates for the foreseeable future, that what do you know, they turned around and decided to. Now we've got this inquiry into the Reserve Bank of Australia to kind of review its role, what the RBA does, how it should operate, you know, the makeup of the board of the RBA. And I wondered if you could reflect on that development, that kind of moment that we had a few months ago that seems to have um, at least been quite symbolic of the problems that we've got at the moment. Yeah, look, that's right. So the Reserve Bank of Australia, the RBA, has been around uh, for a long time. It's, it's created by an act of parliament. And what people perhaps don't realise is that the RBA Act, the, the piece of legislation that created it, said that its main job is to deliver full employment. Whereas usually when we hear people talking about the RBA, they talk about its role in controlling inflation and in particular trying to keep inflation between 2 to 3%. But just to be clear, the RBA Act doesn't say that its job is to control inflation, and the RBA Act makes absolutely no reference of 2 to 3% inflation as being the goal. So we've got this weird beast in the RBA. It's a very powerful independent body. Its board has quite a lot of power. You know, if you're the RBA board gets to decide whether my mortgage goes up or not. We don't usually delegate that much power to people who aren't elected to parliament, 
But interestingly, even though the Act tells them that their job is to focus on full employment, for decades, under successive governments, Labor and Liberal, the RBA has said, yeah, I, I note that concern in the Act about full employment, but how about I focus on an arbitrary 2 to 3% inflation target? Now, we're, that's, that's, I think, been a problem for decades, and I think Australia has had higher unemployment and lower inflation than it might have otherwise had, thanks to their interpretation of their responsibilities. But here's the kicker, as, as you said in the intro, just last year, and in, indeed at the beginning of this year, the Reserve Bank was saying, look, we've been waiting for wages to rise for a long time. We've been persistently surprised that wages haven't risen yet. We, the RBA, think the reason that wages haven't risen is because unemployment's not low enough. So we promise we won't start increasing interest rates. We won't start trying to slow the economy down until real wages start to grow strongly. So, that, you know, in theory, the idea is if unemployment's low enough, cafes would have to offer their workers a higher pay rise. Childcare centres would have to offer their staff a higher pay rise. But of course, that's one theory. Another theory is employers don't have to do anything and they might just choose not to give anyone a wage rise. So yeah, what we've seen this in the last six months is the exact opposite's happened. Real wages have fallen and the Reserve Bank has completely reneged on its commitment and the Reserve Bank has said, well, even though we said we wouldn't increase interest rates until real wages went up, even though real wages fell further than they've ever fallen, we're going to jack up interest rates. So you bet we need an inquiry into the RBA. Yeah. And the rationale for jacking up interest rates and even suggesting that these interest rates would continue to go up and up and up across the year into next year, potentially the middle of next year, is seemingly because inflation is high, the RBA is supposed to use their levers, so to speak, the main one really being interest rates. And I was really curious about this because there is this discussion about, well, if you're going to use that as the lever, shouldn't we make sure that what the real cause of inflation is? Like, shouldn't we know that that tool or medicine is going to fix the problem? So I wonder, Richard, could you tell us what is causing inflation? Like what, <laughs> I know that's a big question, but to the best of your ability. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, look, yeah, look, to be clear, so inflation, let's define that. First, yeah. it's, it's, it's a general increase in prices, not an increase in price of a particular thing, but a general increase. Uh, we measure inflation in Australia primarily through something called the Consumer Price Index, the CPI, and the Consumer Price Index has surged this year with prices rising by 6 or 7%. That's a lot higher than uh, has been the case. Now, as luck would have it, we've got great data that builds the CPI, uh, so we know what's gone up the most. We know that a lot of it's been petrol prices going up because of the war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We know that electricity prices are up, in part because gas prices and even coal prices are higher, thanks to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And we know that some particularly building materials and silicon chips have been really hard to get your hands on, and that's pushed up the prices of things like building a new house, or buying new cars, because new cars need silicon chips, computer chips. So we kind of know what's driving the bus when it comes to which prices have risen the most. And, and we know that increasing interest rates 
won't do anything to stop a war in the Ukraine and it won't do anything to increase the capacity of China to produce silicon chips or Taiwan or anywhere else. Well, so the first part of the problem is that the major causes of our price increases are unrelated to things the Australian Reserve Bank can control. But at the same time that that's happened, we've seen a whole bunch of firms in Australia, a whole bunch of companies increasing their prices not by as much as petrol and not by as much as uh, electricity, but increasing their prices a lot faster than their wages have been going up. Now, the result of that, hold on to your hats, when firms increase their prices faster than their costs go up, is profits go up. And here we are in Australia at a time of record profits. So it's not tough times for everyone at the moment. It's very tough times for people on, on low wages and unemployment benefits. Very hard time to be on a low income. Very good time to own a whole bunch of companies. And to be clear, there's 25 million people in Australia. There's millions of companies too. Some of those companies are doing it tough today. I promise. I'm sure there's someone listening who works for a company that's doing it tough. But that's always the case. But while it's true that some companies are doing it tough today and last year and indeed next year, overall profits are at a record high. But Australian policy debate being as broken as it is, it's impolite to point out that people are profiteering in Australia off the back of the war in the Ukraine, that our oil and gas industry in particular are making enormous profits, paying not much, if any, tax, and a whole bunch of other companies outside the oil and gas industry are making very high profits as well, but we're not supposed to mention that, even though it's what the national accounts tell us. Yeah. Well, I know it is pretty impolite to say that, isn't it? Because it's like a, a kind of elephant in the room all the time. Clearly, oh, that's it's, some... it's the politics of envy, Amy. That's mm. the politics of envy to refer to the data and describe what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that class distinctions and wealth redistribution is becoming more and more of a problem here in Australia. I can remember years ago when going to different conferences, you would still talk about, you know, progressive parties like the Labor parties as being about social democracy and wealth redistribution. But we even heard the Prime Minister in his National Press Club address say that essentially he had a growth agenda and that it was unashamedly pro-business and pro-worker. And he seems to think that you can have both at the same time and make everyone happy, which it sounds like kind of a little bit of a utopia in a way, Richard. But I wondered, could you explain what he's doing there, what he's saying when he's both pro-business and pro-worker and talking about this growth agenda where we're going to have this kind of golden age of growth? Oh, look, I've got two kids and, and they both want to know which one I love the most and they both want to know which one I like the most and they both want to – and you know what every parent says? Oh, I love you both evenly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, it's – it's look, who's – in the sense that the Prime Minister put it, who 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 in Australia in, in modern history has sought office being anti-business or anti-worker mm. um, or certainly being anti-both? Um, you could argue that uh, the Liberals were quite proud of being anti-worker. So, look, unfortunately, these platitudes are part of democratic conversation in Australia. They have no economic meaning at all. What the Prime Minister's saying is, to some extent, very old-fashioned neoliberal argument. Well, if we can grow the pie, then everyone will get some more pie. So don't ask me about who's getting the fair share of the pie. Let's all agree to grow the pie. 
Well, I hate to tell you, pies don't grow. They're baked. You can't grow a pie. <laughs> the metaphor doesn't make any sense. And the economics doesn't make a lot of sense either. Because how we distribute gains, how we distribute income, actually has major economic consequences. And, and at the moment, foreign-owned gas companies making record profits in Australia and then taking those profits offshore, they're doing nothing to help sustain economic growth in Australia going forward, whereas collecting that money from them in tax and investing that in our health system, in our education system, in our infrastructure would radically boost GDP growth going forward. So, yeah, these platitudes of, oh, don't ask me whose side I'm on. I'm on, I'm on the economy's side. Well, that doesn't really cut it. That said, uh, to give the Prime Minister some slack, in order to win office, it is a democracy, in order to win office, he tried hard to persuade a whole bunch of people that he wouldn't do a whole bunch of things that in a democracy some people didn't want done, like bizarrely, apparently some people don't want to tax foreign gas companies. Don't know why. So yeah, so he's trying to tread this fine line at the moment between what he promised to do to win office and what he needs to do to actually manage the economy now that he's won office. And in Australia, we're very good. All parties have got very good at making ridiculous long-run promises about what they'll do when, of course, the job of governing is to respond to the circumstances of the day and making long-run promises about what you, exactly what you will and won't do is almost the same thing as promising not to be a good economic manager. I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute, and we're talking all things the Australian economy. Now, Richard, on a related note, because we were just talking about companies making record profits, especially because of the war in Ukraine, as you say, gas exports are rising there's sometimes a, a so-called gas shortage here in Australia because we're sending so much gas overseas. But I do recall that the Australia Institute brought out a top economist, Joseph Stiglitz, to Australia only recently in about July, I think it was. And he was saying, similar to what you're saying, that a windfall profits tax would be a no-brainer, quote-unquote, because companies were making huge windfall profits. Not all companies, as you've said, everyone's different, but there are some sectors that are doing hugely better out of the situation, the global economic situation we're in. What are your thoughts about a windfall tax, especially for those resources and mining companies? Oh, look, you know, it's, you'd struggle to find a, a trained economist that disagrees with the idea that a windfall profits tax is, is a bad idea. Yeah, so Professor Joe Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist, former chief economist at the World Bank. Uh, yeah, well, the Australian Institute had him out here for three weeks in July. And I think the most common observation he made was, as you said, that he, he thought having a windfall profits tax on the gas industry was a no-brainer. I mean, think about this. Australia is an enormous energy exporter. We're the third largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world behind Saudi Arabia and Russia. Now, when the price of oil goes up, the Saudis celebrate. But when the price of oil and gas goes up in Australia, apparently it's a tough time for you and me. Now, <laughs> now how could that be? Like the world is paying us far more money for our gas and our oil and our coal, far more money than they were a couple of years ago. Sounds like a crisis, doesn't it? Well, it is a problem in Australia because unlike the Saudis and unlike the Norwegians and unlike pretty much most countries 
that export a lot of fossil fuels, we don't have a tax system that grabs the, the bonus that comes when prices surge and keeps it for ourselves. So that's why Joe Stiglitz thought it was a no-brainer. He couldn't believe we didn't already have one, let alone that people would fight to stop one. And, of course, he's not alone. Former Secretary of Treasury Ken Henry, former head of the ACCC Rod Sims, former advisor to the Rudd and Gillard governments on climate change, Ross Garneau. Look, everyone everyone who's serious about maximising the happiness of Australians is serious about a windfall profits tax. But it's still heresy in Australia for the simple reason that, you know, the oil, gas and coal industry in Australia are so politically powerful that even when the economics stack up and even when the public support it, their inside influence dominates all of the good economic and even all of the publicly political benefits of doing it. I'm really keen to see how that plays out, at least the discussion around this, especially flowing on from the Revenue Summit. I hope that's something that creates more public discussion. Richard, Going back to the Reserve Bank for a moment, because you've explained the causes of inflation and how essentially they're unrelated to what the RBA can actually do. The RBA has responded by increasing interest rates and saying that they would continue to increase, which absolutely affects nearly everyone or pretty much everyone in Australia. And it's, you know, something that leads the news when they're about to make a new decision about interest rates. I wonder, could you explain then... If the RBA continues to raise interest rates, what the effect on the economy is and is that actually going to really be almost like shooting ourselves in the foot? Oh, absolutely. Like, to to be clear, the purpose of increasing interest rates, the only purpose of increasing interest rates is to slow down economic growth and to increase unemployment. Let me just say that again in case anyone... (laughs) thinks I'm equivocating, the purpose of increasing interest rates is to slow the economy down and increase unemployment. That's the point. We are so afraid of inflation in Australia that we are happy to have between half a million and a million people unemployed at most points in time because we've told ourselves that if we've got enough unemployed people employees generally won't get too uppity, employees won't be demanding wage rises, and if employees aren't demanding wage rises, then it should be pretty easy to keep price increases down. Now, there are other ways to keep prices down. We could, for example, have a decent competition policy. We could have stronger trade practices protections. We could actually do what they do in other countries and break up monopolies that are ripping us off and charging high prices. But again, it's impolite to say these things in Australia. We just tell ourselves that it's only it's only workers that can cause inflation. Don't worry about profits. Don't worry about owners of firms. They're just there trying to help us all. They, we, we even call them. We call them job creators. <laughs> oh. Um, oh, it's sickening. But anyway, uh, yeah, so the, the problem is we've defined inflation as something that we think is caused by workers. And even though we've had record low wage growth in Australia for decade, 
And even though it's real wages have just fallen, fallen, real wages fell, we're worse off than we were 12 months ago, we still have a policy and political debate that starts from the premise that it's employees that might cause inflation. So when we jack up interest rates, it means people with mortgages have less disposable income. They can't go to the shops and buy as much stuff. That means the shops uh, can't increase their prices. But it also means that, the, as I said before, the economy is not growing as fast as it otherwise might and in turn that unemployment is higher than it would otherwise be. So, yeah, it's pretty brutal. We use nice metaphors like the RBA's hit the brakes on the economy or the economy's overheated and they're trying to cool it down. So we use all these kind of mechanistic metaphors to conceal the simple truth that we increase interest rates so that we can lower millions of people's disposable incomes because we think if we lower millions of people's disposable incomes, they won't buy as much stuff. Uh, prices won't go up as much and unemployment will be a bit higher. That's how mm. it works. Gosh, that's a painful reality to to swallow. And Richard, when we're talking about and thinking about big firms, like, you know, those huge ASX listed companies, especially some who are dominating a market, we're hearing more and more, and you've already said that these companies are making these record profits. They're passing those profits and dividends onto their shareholders. So shareholders are having a great time. But there seems that there's not any kind of room for movement. There's not room for any argy-bargy on reducing the amount of dividends that are passed on to shareholders and putting that money over into wages, for example. Could you explain the kind of thinking that big business especially is putting out there at the moment as to why they will not increase wages, especially those who are doing so well that the average person could see they could afford to do so? Oh, <laughs> yeah, look, the, the simple reason that firms don't increase wages is they don't want to and they're under no pressure to do so, right? So for-profit companies are there to make a profit. You can't blame someone for doing what they set out to do. And uh, anyone that watched Four Corners on Qantas, I, if you haven't, I encourage you to watch it. You know, it's quite clear they made the point that, you know, on, on a big jet – you might have the people, the flight attendants that are uh, are there to help us, are there to serve us, and there to you know save us in the case of an emergency. That on those flights, the same people doing the same work might be on four different salaries because Qantas has invented all these internal companies, 100% owned by Qantas. It's kind of built all these internal companies that it uses to create a war between these internal companies about uh, who's willing to accept the lowest wage rate. And it can literally say to a, a whole bunch of people working for a Qantas subsidiary, if you guys don't accept a lower wage rate or worse conditions, then we won't give any of you work. We'll, we'll employ people from one of our other Qantas subsidiaries. Yeah. <laughs> right Now, this is all legal mm. in, in Australia, not in most countries. So I think we have to get over the idea that wage growth is some abstract concept like rainfall, you know, and we have good years and bad years. There's only one way, there's only one way for workers to get a wage rise and that's for their employer to pay them more money. Like that's it. <laughs> and, and when we talk about average wage growth across the economy, we're not, 
we're not talking about some abstract concept. We're literally talking about adding up all the wage increases that got offered and averaging them out. So if big firms are under no commercial pressure or no competitive pressure and no political pressure to increase wages, then let's be clear, they won't, right? Because it's their job. It's their job to maximise the, 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 the dividends they post to their shareholders. So, yeah, we've kind of got to get over the idea that it's some sort of bad luck or act of God or global markets <laughs> that have caused record low wage growth in Australia. We have record low wage growth for the simple reason that employers are offering record low wage increases. And until they stop doing that, we won't we won't get any significant increase in wages. Mm. And what about the argument? I'm curious about smaller businesses who would say, "Well, I just can't afford to." You know, um, what are the arguments for and against that? Is it a different situation for smaller businesses than it is for those larger businesses? How does one navigate the argument? Say, if you work for a you know a small cafe or a single retail space. How do you argue for a wage rise when your boss says, well, I'm just one business and I can't afford it? Oh, maybe you don't. Just go get another job. Shop yeah. around. Like maybe your boss is never going to give you a pay rise. And and that's a pity. But, you know, we've got to get over this guilt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean it. Like, you know, guess what? Every year lots of businesses, big and small, go broke. And the idea, like, I mean, we're talking now about a skills shortage, now, I, this might sound a bit weird, but, you know, I have a PhD in economics. I've taught economics 25 years or more. I'm getting old. I don't know what the difference between a skills shortage and full employment is. Mm. Right? I, like we've been trying to have full employment for a long time, and full employment means everyone that wants a job's got a job. Now, we're not there, but we're getting pretty close. And you know what? If everyone that wants a job has got a job – then that means there aren't half a million skilled people standing around wishing someone would advertise for a job that they would jump at with both hands. So if I've already got a job because, you know, I've, I've got skills that are in demand, if I've already got a job and I like my job and, and you want me to come and work for you, you know what you're going to have to do? Offer me a higher wage. <laughs> right. Yeah. This would, and you know what this would cause? Wage growth. <laughs> Right. And yeah. that's, that's you know, we know what happens at Christmas time when there's a so-called, well, we, we don't usually say there's a shortage of hotel rooms at Byron Bay in summer. We don't usually talk about a shortage of hotel rooms. We don't usually talk about a shortage of prawns at Christmas time. We just know that if lots of people want to buy something and there's not a lot of it around, the price will go up. Well, if a lot of people are looking for welders or hairdressers or baristas at the moment, if a lot of people want to employ people to do that, then then what a, a deregulated labour market like the one we've been building for decades should do is say, well, fair enough, the workers should go work where the wages are highest. But now we're saying to workers, oh, don't do that. Don't No, don't go take the highest wage on offer. You, you should actually, your job is to help the small business you work for maximise its profit. Like we're pretty confused about capitalism here. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a charity, not a hard-minded financial decision. 
Yeah, but of course the employer is allowed to make hard-minded financial decisions whenever they want. So, look, don't get me wrong. There are small businesses out there doing it tough today. There are big businesses out there doing it tough today. But doing it tough today is actually what capitalism is all about. And workers get paid for their skill, for their effort. And if if their skills and their efforts are in short supply, then that is exactly what should drive wages growth. But mm. bizarrely in Australia, we've turned achieving something close to full employment into a problem, a problem for employers called a skills <laughs> shortage. Well, you know, that's that's the way the market's supposed to work. Yeah. It's funny because the Jobs and Skills Summit was all about, or a lot of it was about the skills shortage, Richard, and trying to address that by increasing permanent migration and also looking at other things. One of the things that you know we haven't addressed that I know was one of the key moments supposedly that was going to happen out of the summit was that the unions and big business would sit together and come to some kind of compromise or agreement about increasing um, the ability for employees to negotiate working conditions, better working conditions, and then for business to, you know, be able to get what they wanted out of that scenario, you know, which is kind of more streamlined agreements, the Fair Work Commission not interfering with the process. But Richard, I wondered if you could explain to us what the Jobs and Skills Summit was seeking to do, especially in that realm where we've heard that union power has been diminishing more and more, so therefore worker power has been diminishing. Did we actually get to a point in that summit where there was any kind of consensus around the negotiating rights of the worker versus the employer? Yeah, so Australia's really good at exporting education and training. Hundreds of thousands of people come from all around the world to come to our publicly owned Australian universities to learn how to be doctors, to learn how to be scientists, to learn how to be engineers. But apparently we're told Australia just can't train hairdressers and welders. There's something broken and we just have a broken system. Well, we do. Our public universities export enormous amounts of education services, but our privatised vocational education and training system has failed spectacularly. So we need to understand how we got into this problem. Uh, Our public unis are still great at exporting, but everything we've done in the vocational space uh, for 30 years now has made life harder, not easier. So what was the deal that happened at the summit? It wasn't so much consensus. They all still disagree with each other. But effectively, unions got part of what they wanted, which is government agreement with with some employer support for industry or patent bargaining. That's what the unions wanted. Uh, And we're going to increase skilled migration from about 180,000 to about 200,000. That's what the employer groups wanted. Now, those two things have nothing to do with each other. It's just that some of the employer groups got what they wanted and some of the unions got what they wanted, and that's that's right. That's that's a compromise. But, yeah, there's no actual consensus. The employer groups don't really want to see patent bargaining come back, but some of them would prefer to see skilled migration go up than, than stop the patent bargaining, and the unions don't really think that we need to bring people in to solve a skill shortage but they'll go along with that if they can get the patent bargaining, the sector bargaining they wanted. So, yeah, that that was the deal that sat at the heart of that whole summit, but we haven't really fixed 
our major problem, and that is how come Australia can train astrophysicists and it can't train welders? And a lot of those astrophysicists are heading overseas when they do get trained here as well. Oh, well, that's right. We, we don't even want to keep them uh, when we train them up. But look, it's, I, I think it's a really simple lesson for us. Our publicly funded universities are struggling, to be honest, like neoliberalism has really undermined them as well. But where we let neoliberalism really rip was in our vocational education and training system. And that's where we're having all these uh, very real problems. And let's be clear, this isn't about COVID. Year after year, decade after decade, apparently we haven't been able to train enough cooks. When, of course, really what happens is we're not willing to pay wages uh, that are high enough to attract people that have got choices to either go into that industry or stay in that industry. But again, we we know that airlines will jack up their price in periods of high demand. We know that hotels will jack up their price in periods of high demand. But workers, oh no, they can't jack up their prices in times of high demand. That would cause inflation. (laughs) And Richard, you mentioned there COVID. It was something that I've seen you tweet about, which I've really appreciated in the past, because there is a clear interaction between the pandemic and the economy, as we've noticed for the entire two and a half years that COVID has been running rampant. Obviously, it was suppressed when we actually had true public health measures in place. Now we saw National Cabinet take a ridiculous step in my view, which is an anti-science step. We've seen National Cabinet really taken over and compelled by the two major states, New South Wales and Victoria, to keep reducing restrictions, to lift the work from home guidelines. And I wondered, could you reflect on this from an economics perspective? Because I know you have been, you know, across the whole pandemic and we've had specific pandemic chats as well. But do you have any views on this change and the relinquishing of public health measures? Because they clearly would have an impact on the economy if more and more workers get unwell and we have only short periods between these waves of high numbers of cases? Oh, absolutely. Well, let, let's be clear. More people will get sick, more people will die. Uh, and the next time we have the next wave, it will hit harder and faster thanks to this decision. I mean, the, the brutal reality is that we ignore science all the time. We ignore science when we talk about our climate policy. We're still not just approving new coal and gas mines. We're subsidising them. Uh, We've ignored public health experts for years saying we should ban junk food advertising during children's viewing hours and no chance of us stopping those things anytime soon. And of course, yes, here we are ignoring science now saying, uh, and even the Prime Minister said, you know, basically, if you're not sick, why shouldn't you be at work? And the simple answer is because you'll make other people sick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the, the, the purpose of isolation was never to help sick people not be tired The purpose of isolation was to stop sick people making other people sick. And the science hasn't changed. uh, Indeed, the new variants of COVID are often more contagious, not less. So the science hasn't changed, but the politics has changed. And, yeah, the National Cabinet has decided now that it's going to ignore science when, when, when making these big decisions. So because COVID cases are declining at the moment, and if you look at the data, you'll see that it comes in waves, it'll continue to decline, most likely, even though this decision's been made. But the consequence is, of course, that the next wave that shows up, more people will spread it more quickly 
because of this very, very, very unscientific decision. But again, that's Australia. <laughs> we ignore <laughs> science. No, we ignore science whenever powerful groups tell us to. And the employer groups are frustrated by finding it hard to get their staff. And the employer groups are short-sighted enough to be worried about next week's staffing, not staffing during the next wave. And just as it's short-termism that causes climate change, it's now short-termism that's going to cause unnecessary suffering next next wave. Yeah, and long COVID will continue to affect the employment market as well. Just finally, Richard, you've written an op-ed in the Nine Papers. It's called Breaking Promises Isn't Easy, Keeping the Wrong Ones Is Just As Painful. And there you're referring to these stage three tax cuts that we've heard talked about, especially in the last week a lot, but even previous to that. And I wonder, could you address that heading, which is essentially the message of this piece? Why is it a good idea for the Albanese Labor government to ditch tax cuts that, as the Prime Minister said in his National Press Club address, we committed to them, we now have to stand by them. Why would you stick to something so solidly when the circumstances have totally changed from the original ones where the decision was made? Yeah. Oh, look, I don't think there's a simple answer here because really the question is when we elect people to make decisions on our behalf, would we prefer them to do what they promised to do or what the smart thing to do is under the circumstances? And, you know, of course, the simple solution is don't make ridiculous long-run promises that you'll have no control over, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that, shut the gate, the horse is bolted. They, they have made some ridiculous promises. The question now is should they keep their promises or shouldn't they? And what I wrote in my piece was if you ask the simple question, is it better to keep promises or break them, of course everyone will say it's better to keep them like saying, is it better to be nice or is it better to be nasty? But sometimes being nice can get you into trouble. Sometimes being polite can mean that people take advantage of you. Sometimes you actually have to do things that might not be your desired course of action. So we're at this kind of almost Shakespearean dilemma point. Does Labor, who spent decades wanting to be taken seriously as a good economic manager... Does Labor put the virtue signalling of keeping a bad promise ahead of the economic benefits of ditching tax cuts that clearly do not suit our times? These tax cuts were introduced by then-Treasurer Scott Morrison back in 2018. He promised that continued high rates of economic growth would make them affordable and responsible, and Labor before the election uh, and, and before real wages fell 3% and before interest rates went up four times, Labor agreed pre-election that they would stick with these stage three tax cuts. Now, I thought that was a mistake at the time, but clearly the circumstances we now find them ourselves in make them even less appropriate. And also in the piece I make the political point, is Labor really going to show up? These, these stage three tax cuts kick in six months before the next election. Does Labor really want to give 9000 bucks a year in tax cuts to people earning over $200,000 and literally nothing to people earning below $45,000 six months out from the next election? Because if they're silly enough to do that, the Liberals will just attack them for hating low-income earners. 
Yes, which is clearly the constituency the Liberal Party are pivoting to is these so-called forgotten Australians that they forgot in the last nine years of their government. The total cost of that stage three tax cut package will be $243.5 billion. And as you point out and have pointed out throughout your research, these tax cuts mainly go to men, with men getting 67% of the tax cuts while women get 33%. So there are so many inequities that these tax cuts seem to entrench. It goes against what supposedly a Labor Party would stand for. So you know, you point out those, those political considerations really, really well. But obviously, there are so many logical and rational responses to those staunch defences of the policy that... Uh, it's kind of hard to see how Labor could continue to stick by them. Well, look, look, <laughs> there is no simple solution for them here. They, yeah. they made a big, they made a big promise. They did, and that big promise is entirely inappropriate for the circumstances we're in. It is. What do they want to go to the next election campaigning on? That they kept Scott Morrison's policy from 2018, or they made the best decisions that they thought were in Australia's national interest. Now, what I say in the op-ed is that really I think that in a democracy we should take politicians' promises seriously, but politicians should also be able to have a conversation with the public and say, look, we did make this promise and, you know, we're not so sure about it now, so let's let's have that debate, let's have mm. that conversation. Again, if, if Labor just keeps asking, is it better to keep a promise or break it, people will keep saying it's better to keep it, but... You know, as again, as I said in my piece, like I, I promised to catch up with my oldest friends that I hadn't seen for years just before COVID, and and then I reneged on that promise. But reneging on that promise didn't cause any loss of trust in my relationship with my friends. Everyone understood the circumstances have changed. So I think the opportunity for Labor is to come clean and say, look, we never really loved these tax cuts, but we really did think that most of you guys loved them. That's why we. That's why we did it because we thought mm. you wanted us to do it. Well, really, we don't think they're good for you now and we might have to change our minds, but we're not, we're not, we haven't made our mind up yet. Let's talk to, about this. And I think if we had a public debate about would people prefer 9000 bucks a year going to people earning 200000 or more, would they prefer those tax cuts to be spread out more fairly? Would they prefer some of the tax cuts be used to boost the pay of childcare workers and aged care workers? I think if we had that conversation, I think most Australians would say, yeah, you're right. I didn't care that much before the election, but I do care now. You know, it's okay to change your mind. But I don't think that politicians should make promises lightly and I don't think they should break promises lightly, but I don't think they should keep promises that are inappropriate. I mean, imagine the promises that the Ukrainian government made before uh, Russia invaded. I don't mean to trivialise this. I mean, the circumstances changed and the government's priorities changed, and people understand that. Now, our crisis is nowhere near what's happening in the Ukraine, but my point is when something changes, when the world changes, good economic managers respond to those changes. Uh, and if that's what Labor wants to be, then I think they're going to have to have a nice, big, hard, honest conversation with the Australian public about what the Australian public really wants. Indeed. Thank you, Richard, as always, for joining us on the show and providing such in-depth analysis, but really bringing it home to us what all of this means to the average Australian who didn't go to union study and economics degree. And I certainly <laughs> didn't do that. Thank God. I'm glad you did for us. So we really appreciate your time. 
Thank you. And, um, yeah, hope to see a few of you at the summit on the 6th. Thanks, Amy. Wonderful. Thanks, Richard. I've just been chatting with Dr Richard Dennis, Executive Director of the Australia Institute, and we've been talking all things the Australian economy without the Econobabble and also referencing there the Jobs and Skills Summit. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.